0: Good singing today, great job, quartet, uh, that's really, really great. Man, Miss Emily blessed us last week and the quartet this week and just many gifted musicians using their talents for the Lord and that's a, a beautiful, wonderful thing uh, to see. You know, one of the great things about being a parent is watching your children learn and uh, one thing I love about my boys uh, is watching them learn about heroes from the past that I used to look up to and I used to know about. And I kind of get to learn about them again as I watch my boys learning about them in school, uh, as they learn about history lessons and history things. And uh, and, and so I enjoy that. I enjoy uh, my boys uh, enjoying learning about some of the same heroes that I, that I had uh, as a child. One of my heroes from the past that my mom and dad told me about and had a nice little book there at home that... Uh, That told about the Revolutionary War and had a lot of great pictures with it. And so one of my heroes growing up was a guy named Paul Revere. If you know who Paul Revere is, raise your hand. I just want to see. Who knows Paul Revere? All right, so Paul Revere. Now, today, and when I was a kid, uh, Paul Revere was known for his Midnight Ride. Paul Revere's Ride. That was the name of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I think around 1860 that poem came out. And that poem told how Paul Revere rode. Uh, through Massachusetts, warning the people uh, that the British were arriving, and uh, his warning as he made his nighttime ride was to warn them to get ready. And he, uh, because of those warnings that he helped give, along with some others, uh, the colonial militia organized, and the battles of Lexington and Concord took place. Uh, those battles that helped spark the the revolution took place, and Paul Revere was the guy, right? Who He rode through the town and letting people know the British have arrived and we need to get the militia ready. And so that's what I knew about Paul Revere Uh, was was his ride waking folks up and getting the militia ready. I did not know. I did not know until last week that until Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem Paul Revere was known mostly for something else in Massachusetts, if he was remembered at all. And what he was known for was not good at all. Now, I just asked, how many of you knew of Paul Revere? And just about every hand went up. How many of you know about the Battle of Pentecost, Pentecost Bay? Nobody. Well, Brother Rick, we got one. Brother Rick, anybody else? Listen to this. Three years into the Revolutionary War, after that ride, Massachusetts was virtually independent. There were no British soldiers in the Commonwealth. But suddenly, in the middle of that summer, three years into the war, the British sent about 700 men, not a very big group, about 700 men, and three small warships to Pentecost Bay. They attended to establish a beachhead there, and to reinforce uh, their dominance. It was a really small expedition. Uh, and so Massachusetts decided we've got to deal with this. We've got to uh, take these out. Three small warships and 700 men. And so the Commonwealth of Massachusetts sent 42 ships, including 18 warships, to oust the British. It was the largest fleet assembled during the entire entirety of the Revolutionary War. Their mission was simple, captive, take them capture, kill, or destroy the enemy. And on July 28, 1779, the Americans attacked quite successfully. They got all the way up to the fort, uh, which was not, not very long in being built. So they were ready, they got there, they, they got they got where they needed to be, they got up into the bay, they got right up to the fort, and they were ready to take it over. But what happened was a set of the worst decisions and uh, horrible acts of miscommunication, some of the worst miscommunication and decision-making of the entire war. The general decided, leading the Americans, that he would not attack the fort until the admiral of the fleet began to attack the ships. And the admiral of the fleet said, I will not attack the three warships. He had 42 of his own ships, 18 warships. He said, I will not attack until the general attacks the fort. And both of them refused to attack until the other attacked, and neither one of them would attack. And so the American forces sat there while the British built their fort higher and higher and higher. And as the British got word out uh, throughout the colony to where other forces were that they needed reinforcements. It wasn't long until a fleet of seven warships showed up uh, Seven more warships of the British showed up to relieve the fort. When the seven ships arrived, the 18 American warships panicked and instead of helping the smaller boats escape first while they defended them, they they fled immediately and they fled right into a trap. By the time it was all over, only one American ship out of 42 escaped. By some accounts, 500 Americans were killed or went missing somebody had to take the blame and that somebody was Paul Revere Paul Revere was one of the leaders uh, of this attack Paul Revere was put on house arrest and for two years Paul Revere was court-martialed until finally they decided there wasn't enough evidence and they exonerated him and they they let him go and he went home and he went home and basically just kept his head down Uh, And if he was known for anything, he was known for one of the worst defeats that the Americans experienced in the Revolution. In 1860, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote his poem. And uh, thankfully for Revere, it wasn't about that great defeat. It was about his ride warning the American militia to get ready. If you hope that history and your family and those that you love remember the good things about you and not the bad, say amen. And that's what I hope as well. Sometimes we think we know somebody. And we think we know all about them. And then something occurs that gives us some insight that we really didn't know. This morning, uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And we saw last week the first Christian sermon the first christian sermon that was preached after jesus's ascension and we saw what the apostle peter preached there Uh, this morning we need to go back we need to go back and let the bible take us back to the early church because we need to be reminded what is it that made the early church great Uh, We know uh, the warts of the church, and we know the faults of the church, and the media is really good about attacking the church. And we know from every side the church is assaulted and the church is attacked. And we need to go back and let the Word of God remind us in the midst of the attacks upon the church, we need to be renewed by remembering what is it that made the church great in the first place and what is it that the church should be doing. And so this morning I want us to go back. I want us to go back, and I want us to go to Acts chapter 2, and I want us to pick up with the Apostle Peter as he finishes this great sermon. I want us to see the response of the people, and and what happens as this new set of believers join in with the disciples, and the church of Jesus is launched. So go to Acts chapter 2, and go to verse 37, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, now Listen to this. I want, you to, I want to remind you how Peter started his sermon, and then I want us to see the result. All right. So just listen to this. Remember, This is how Peter started his sermon there. He said, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourself also know. Remember last week we saw Peter started his sermon by preaching about Jesus. And then he made this statement. About Jesus. He said, You delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God to take him. You've taken him and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So, Peter, we saw last week, looked out at his crowd and lets them know, I'm going to preach and proclaim Jesus. And some of you here have sinned against Jesus. In fact, you personally took him and crucified him. And then we saw Peter preach this message. This message about the life, death, resurrection, and coming return of Jesus. How did these first listeners respond? Look at verse 37, chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, the crowd heard it, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Sin eventually gets you to the point when it makes a wreck of your life, when the natural response is, what am I going to do? And so these folks, confronted with their sin, look at the apostles. They look at Peter. What shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. So the sermon goes on. The testifying goes on. And we don't, we don't know all what else was said. We don't know what else occurred. We just know the meat of the message was about Jesus. And he told them, you need to get right. You need to repent. And you need to confess Jesus as Savior, and you need to publicly make a testimony of this through baptism. When that happens, you'll receive the very presence of God. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 40 With many other words did he testify and exhort, and said, Save yourself, save yourself by turning to Jesus from this untoward generation. And then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued. What they do after they were saved and baptized? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, or the apostles' teaching, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. A sense of wonderment, a sense of awe, a sense of fear of what Was occurring. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods, and they parted, or they split them up to all men, as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they continued to go to the temple. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. So they would continue to go to the temple uh, as Messianic Jews, believers in Jesus. They kept going to the temple, but they also went uh, homes among themselves, those that embraced Jesus. And they broke bread from house to house, and they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So much good stuff here. And one of the good things that is shared in Acts chapter 2 are the marks of the early church. And I identify at least nine marks uh, from verse 37 to 47, at least nine marks of the early church. And so today I want us to look at five of these and next week we'll Look up at four more, all right? And they'll go right in with with homecoming and celebrating that. It's perfect. But this week, I want to look at five, all right? So five marks the church. So if you're taking notes, this would be a great time to actually take notes, to put down what is it that the early church was doing. So first thing, five things. First thing that the early church did, number one, is they proclaimed salvation through Jesus. They preached, they proclaimed salvation through Jesus through Jesus there is only one way of salvation and that way is Jesus Christ verse 37 says the audience they were pricked to the heart they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do they knew they were sinful for killing Jesus and they had been confronted with it what shall we do and Peter said unto them repent Be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What makes these Christians different from other Jewish sects? There were other Jewish sects that had arisen and other Jewish groups that would come and go. What makes these Jewish Christians different? One word, and the word is Jesus. The church, the early church, and all. True churches and all true believers are centered around Jesus. The church does not offer salvation through the power of its apostolic leadership. Peter, James, and John, they could not save. I cannot save you. Billy Graham could not save you. Your mother cannot save you. Your grandmother cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. But Jesus can save you. And Jesus will save you. If you repent of your sin, if you in sorrow, true sorrow of your heart, recognize your sin and repent and turn to Jesus, align with Jesus, you shall be saved. You cannot keep carrying the weight of your sin. You must repent of it. You must trust in Jesus to forgive you, and you must be baptized as a public testimony, at least to those witnesses that are watching. A public testimony that you have been changed. You have died to sin and through the power of the Lord you have risen to new life. And every time an early Christian would go through the ancient rite of baptism and other people would see it, it was a public testimony that they had turned from their sin and they were trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ And what a wonderful testimony is, what a wonderful act Christian baptism is. For a watching world, the act itself shows what Jesus has done. He died and went into the grave and is resurrected to new life. And so when you're baptized, you're showing what Jesus has done. But you're also showing your unification with that. And that you have also now died to your sin. And you, you have trusted in the suffering of Jesus. And you are trusting that one day, just as he rose... Uh, that he rose from the grave, that he will rise you back up. If you know when the great and terrible day of the Lord comes that you don't have to fear because you belong to Jesus, say amen. The world is afraid and the world lives in fear. There's the gnawing knowledge that some calamity is coming. Uh, There are all sorts of movies about the apocalypse. Some of them are natural disaster things. Other ones are the zombie movies or, or nuclear disaster. Humanity knows, and by the way, if you study history, it's always had this gnawing knowledge that there's a great day of calamity that is coming. And the Word of God reveals to us throughout Scripture that it is the day of the Lord. And there is a day of the Lord that is coming, but for those of us that are unified With Jesus it is not a day of fear, it is a day of salvation when the day of the Lord occurs. So the first mark of the early church, they offered salvation through Jesus. Uh, I don't care what denomination, I don't care um, what group, I don't care what country, I don't care what ethnic background. A church is not a church if it preaches salvation through anything else but Jesus not a church it's not a church but any church that preaches that has at least got the first step right the central step right the early church preached salvation through jesus second mark of the early church not only did they preach salvation through jesus but they offered folks something do you know that did you catch that uh he made an offer to these jews he, he told them he said you can be saved through jesus and then he made them a promise he made them a promise of what would occur when they trusted in Jesus. What did he promise them? Look at verse 38. What's been promised to you when you embrace Jesus? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive, you shall be given, what? The gift of the Holy Ghost. And so what did the early church do? The early church offered salvation through Jesus. They proclaimed salvation through Jesus, and they promised the Holy Ghost. Silver, gold, wealth, power, popularity, the devil offers these things. And our flesh craves such things. But the church, the church does not offer silver. It does not offer gold. It does not offer popularity, it does not offer human power, but it does offer a power that is beyond all the human powers combined, the power of the Holy Ghost in your life. I love this quote. Look at this, look at this quote. Brother, Brother Rick show them this quote. The early church was married to poverty, prison, and persecution. And we're going to see this through the book of Acts. There's going to be poverty, there's going to be prison, and there's going to be persecution. But today's church is married to prosperity, to personality, and to popularity. We are, we, we, we have a lot of wealth. We have a lot of it. And we're married, we're married to it. We don't want to let it go. We're married to that prosperity. The church, in many cases, is driven by personality. The personality of the pastor. Now I want to preach the word of God with authority and with conviction. But it is true that there are too many people, too many people, that their relationship with God is dependent upon the popularity of the preacher. We don't need a Christianity based upon the popularity of a preacher. We need a Christianity that is rooted in the power of the Holy Ghost of God. So the early church, they knew the power of the Holy Ghost in their poverty in their prisons, and they knew the presence of God's Spirit in the persecutions that they went through together. But we have prosperity, we have personality, and we want to be popular with this world. And it's interesting, different people that get involved in different things, and what they talk about and what they don't talk about, and it becomes apparent. It's really the power of the Holy Ghost. Or is it remaining popular with your family or popular with your college friends or popular with the political powers or popular with this group or popular with that group? You better be careful. You better be careful that we don't trade the power of God for what the devil could give us because what he can give us will not save us. We need Jesus and we need our presence in our church today. The Holy Spirit, God's very presence to strengthen, to sustain, and to guide us The church that preaches Jesus has one gift to give. We have one gift to give and the reason we can give it is because Jesus is the one who promised it and this gift is His Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is a seal on your life the holy spirit that is a seal and a sign that you belong to god baptism is that act that shows that you have identified with him the giving of the holy ghost is the seal upon your life that you indeed belong to this new kingdom the kingdom of jesus that when you leave this life and you cross the river of death the whole, the seal the holy spirit is there to ensure that when you leave this life you will indeed enter into to that kingdom of God and you will spend eternity with Him. We need the Holy Ghost. It's okay that the video didn't work. It's okay when programs don't go exactly how you think they should. It's okay when a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a children's church worker, it's okay when they mess up and make a mistake in their presentation. It's okay when you arrive and some days you feel more up here than here. That, that, to some extent, is all right as well. All of that is okay, but here's what is not okay. What is not okay is when we gather and we have no expectation that the Spirit of God is going to move in our midst. It's not okay. Because then we're just moving through that motion. We're just, well, I don't need the Spirit of God. I can just read this and understand this by myself. No, you can't. Did you know that? I've sat under many professors. When I was at Duke, I sat under professors that they had a lot of human knowledge, and there were a lot of things they could teach and share uh, about ancient Christian culture and even about the languages and on down the line. They could share a lot of things, and they could share a lot of true things. But there's one thing that some of them had and others did not, and it was pretty obvious who did and who didn't. You can know all about this Bible, and you can read it on your own. But if you do not have the power of the Holy Ghost guiding you and you submitting to it in the reading, you can convince yourself of all kinds of things. Amen? We need, we desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost in our churches and in our lives. So they they did some things. They offered salvation through Jesus. And they promised the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, They taught the apostles' doctrine. Look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine were just those teachings by these eyewitnesses of what Jesus had lived and what Jesus had taught. And so these these disciples that had seen Jesus and walked with Jesus, they taught it to others and the, the, these early churches that had embraced Jesus as Savior. They're continuing in the teachings that the apostles gave. Cookville Free Will Baptist Church is unapologetically. Now, there's some things we do that I'll apologize for in a heartbeat because maybe we're wrong or maybe I'm wrong or maybe, maybe it could be done better. And so there's some things, sure, that you can apologize for. But there is one thing that I will not apologize for, and one thing that I pray will remain true, and if it ever ceases to be true, that we cease to be a church. Cookville Church is unapologetically a church that is focused on teaching what the eyewitnesses have left us of Jesus. We're a teaching church. If your kids attend Sunday school, or if they attend children's church, or they attend a Wednesday night class, I can guarantee this. A lot of things I can't guarantee, but I can guarantee you this. They are going to be taught the Bible truth, and they are going to be instructed in the Apostles' doctrine, in preaching, adult classes, book studies. Priority will always be given to what Jesus has said His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. And a sure and certain coming return must be the center of who we are and who you are. Oh, listen, denominational affiliation, it can be important, but it's not central. Pastor's opinion may be important, but not central. Church traditions can be important, not central. Your feelings? Uh Uh-oh, I was with you with those first four. Your feelings? important but not central amen that was weak that was weak let me ask you again your feelings important but not central amen you know what is important and is central jesus jesus what jesus says what jesus wants what he has left, where he guides, what he is uh, using, his word and his Holy Spirit, to direct and lead and empower. That is what is central. Jesus must be central. There are many denominations and Christian groups that have risen and fallen away from the Lord. There are many local churches that once had a great ministry that have died on the vine. There are many church traditions that once reflected a power of the Holy Spirit Uh, but eventually just became about a group maintaining that tradition and eventually had nothing to do with the power of the Lord. Oh, there are many of those things. But there is only one thing that will last, and that is Jesus. The early church had such power and it had such authority because it offered salvation through Jesus Christ. It promised the Holy Spirit. didn't have any money to offer couldn't offer you popularity you're going to see this pretty quick christianity gets very unpopular with leader with leadership among the jews that happens pretty fast uh, they couldn't offer a whole bunch of interesting teaching because because until the apostle paul shows up its main leaders are pretty ignorant now don't let some preachers misguide you on that they are ignorant But they had had three years of school at the feet of Jesus. They didn't just rise up out of nowhere and nothing and start doing this thing. They had for three years of their life dedicated themselves to hearing and seeing and walking with the Master. But in an earthly sense, in an earthly sense, these are not what you would call super-educated men. Except they've been educated By the Son of God Himself. Can I tell you today, what we most need is a little more education from Jesus. We need a little more walking with Jesus. We need a little more talking with Jesus. And we need a whole lot more listening to Jesus. What He has to say. And so this church, they they couldn't offer a lot of interesting teachers because these guys wouldn't know how to give lots of interesting teaching but they knew one thing they knew Jesus so they offered salvation through Christ and they promised the Holy Spirit and they taught the Apostles doctrine and then fourthly they engaged the early church engaged in communal fellowship look at verse 42 again all right look at verse 42 they continued steadfastly in the Apostles doctrine and fellowship then look at verse 46 and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meat together, eating together with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, the, there's a word. There's a Greek word for this fellowship, and it is translated different ways in the New Testament. It shows up 19 or 20 times in the New Testament. This is a new word. This is a word that's going to appear here in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a new word to the Bible. It's, it's, it's going to appear in the book of Acts, and it's something you don't, you don't see in the Gospels. This is something new that happens when the church is born. Now, the Greek word for it, Brother Rick, show them. The Greek word is koinonia. Now, now, you may not be able to see this, but at the bottom, at the bottom here is koinonia, and that means sharing, that means fellowship, uh, that means uh, uh, togetherness. Now, when God is revealed through Jesus, something happens within the church. There's the, 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 the kergama. That is the preaching, the proclaiming. And then there's the didache. That's the teaching. So there's preaching that occurs proclaiming Jesus. And then there's the didache. There's the, there's the teaching of what, of what is to be believed about Jesus. Then over here, and this is the word deacons come from. Deacons really, that Greek word for deacons just means serving. There's these servant leaders that, that pop up in the church. And then there's a fourth thing, and we see it right here in Acts chapter 2 for the first time. It's the koinonia And that is the sharing together. The participation together. The fellowship together. The contributing together. Here is the first occurrence of this word that's going to appear 19 or 20 more times in the New Testament. And it is showing us that from the very beginning, the communal life of the church has been a key aspect of what it means to be a part of the bride of Christ. God's kingdom is is not a solitary affair. It's not. Now, do I understand, and at times am even sympathetic to people who have been hurt in church that then withdraw? Yes, I can understand that. I can. I can understand that. And uh, it would be tempting, and I've felt this way before, Sometimes it would be tempting to say, I'm not going to do this fellowship anymore. I'm just going to stay home and worship the Lord God by myself. I bet everybody in this room, if you've lived long enough, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody in here hasn't felt that way before. Well, why don't we do that when we feel that way? Why don't we do it? Can I give you one simple reason Why? And then you can get a lot deeper into this. But one reason that we don't do this is because if you're doing that, you're not doing what Jesus left. You're not. And so there's always that point with people that say, well, I just don't go to church anymore and I don't fellowship together and I, I, I don't participate with other Christians and things. I don't do that anymore. And they give you their list of reasons. And I do think with many people you need to listen and you need to be sympathetic uh, to the hurt that they've experienced, but at some point you're going to have to take them back to Acts chapter two, and you're going to have to say, "Look, you may think the best thing for you is to get off by yourself and to give up on the fellowship of this community, but that's not what Jesus. That's not what Jesus did, and that's not how He's described this life. Why is it so important to be in fellowship? Why? You know why it's important to be in fellowship? It's because here's the thing when you have to work with other believers. Listen to this. When you have to work with believers, that means you're always, you're always taking a risk. And you're always placing yourself out there. And it means you're always open to being hurt. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to open myself up to being hurt by other people? You know why? Because you serve a God that opened his whole body up on a cross to be hurt for you. That does not mean when somebody wrongs you that you just pretend like it's no big deal. That doesn't mean when somebody wrongs you that that, that that doesn't have to be dealt with. That doesn't mean that at times you might have to decide this church is not actually doing what Jesus wanted and it's reached such a degree that I've got to do something else. I understand that those things happen. But here's the deeper truth that you've got to remind yourself because what the devil will do when you're hurt is he will try really hard to isolate you and he will try really hard to get you alone and he will convince you, you just get over in this corner and you'll be okay. And the problem is the very God you serve, the God of Jesus Christ is saying to you, you know what, you may not have the power to put yourself out there again where somebody might hurt you, but I'll give you my Holy Spirit who will empower you to put yourself back out there for a world that needs my love. And so koinonia, the fellowship, is central to who the church is. There is no church without koinonia, and this is such an important thing that happens that it's going to show up 19 or 20 times in the Bible. What happens when this koinonia occurs? Now this new fellowship occurs, and with it, a new institution that Jesus had instituted, this new institution, this new activity, begins to occur within the life of the church on a regular basis that was a sign and a reminder of, this is why we have koinonia to begin with. This is why we have fellowship to begin with. What is this thing? This thing is the Lord's Supper. Go back to verse 42 and verse 46 again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking bread, and in prayers. All right, look at verse 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, most people believe that this is pointing towards the Lord's Supper is occurring among these people. It may not have been occurring exactly the way we practice it. In fact, it seems in the New Testament that when it talks about the supper, there are times it seems, that's interesting, it kind of seems this way here, and then there's some other places you look and that seems a little bit more like this. Here's here's the key. What they were doing is they were breaking bread in Jesus' name, and we know very quickly they begin doing the Lord's Supper together just as Jesus had taught them to. They're breaking the bread, they're drinking the wine, and the Apostle Paul's going to have to address some of how you do that and what you, what you don't do. They're breaking the bread and they're drinking the wine and they are together rallying and being strengthened through Jesus and who he is and what he's done. I, can, I, can I just ask you, if you were here Wednesday night, if, if you were just blessed tremendously by communion Wednesday night, would you say amen? It was one of the best communion services we've ever had, and I've had a number of people communicate that. The students, the students in the class that Brother Mark taught and and Brother Matthew Thompson and Brother Mike Townsley helped with that, they were ready when they came to communion. Oh, in our class, we'd been looking at at the great Protestant breakthrough and how uh, Protestantism broke with Catholicism, and part of that had to do with the communion, that under the old Catholic way, and, and by the way, there are folks that, that are Catholics that I, I, I believe they love Jesus. I, I've met some that I really believe that. But there is a key difference. This isn't to attack other people put them down. There's a key difference say, what is it? Now, in the old Catholicism, at least in the Middle Ages, the priest had that bread and he had that wine. And there was a degree that it was about the power of the priest, what he could do with Jesus' body, the bread and the wine. And what Martin Luther did, is Martin Luther, and it wasn't just him, there were others that said, This is wrong. It's not about what the priest does in communion, it's about what God does in communion. It's not about what a man does, and a power of a preacher, a power of a priest. It is the power of what Jesus did for us when his body was broken on a cross and his blood was shed for us. If you are glad that your salvation is not dependent on anything I do, but it's fully dependent on what Jesus has done. Say amen. And so these early churches, they've got this new fellowship. And there are people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of way of life. And all kinds of people with different opinions. And boy, we're going to see in the book of Acts. And you see in Paul's letter, there all of a sudden, it doesn't take long for church, to, church fights to start. It starts quick. And all types of confusion. And all kinds of difference of opinion. And it looks like, if you, if you, if you are watching... You might have thought the early church was just going to fall apart. If you actually saw those early churches and what quickly happened, you would think this thing is going to fall apart. Why, after 2,000 years, has the church not fallen apart? One word, Jesus. Jesus. And so when they do the Lord's Supper, when they do this activity, it is a reminder that this koinonia that they now have, the fellowship that they have, has happened because of what Jesus has done. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out to you. So, so these are the marks, right? Salvation in Jesus' name, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, right? It's there in the, in, in the, Lord, in the Lord's Supper with them. But I, I want to point a phrase out to you that occurs. Look back at verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They continue in the teaching, and they continue with koinonia, the fellowship, the sharing together. They continue in the teaching, and they continue in the sharing together. At first, this first group, they're primarily sharing in the power of this Pentecost experience, and the power that they've seen demonstrated that the Holy Ghost has just done by allowing people from, from, from all different places to hear the Word of God and experience it. And boy, what, a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what an exciting thing. What an amen type of time. What this church does not know. Part of the reason why this fellowship is so important And why partaking of the Lord's Supper and being reminded of His broken body and His broken blood on a repeated basis is so important is because it's not that long until they will experience a different type of koinonia and it will be the fellowship of persecution all together. You see, the koinonia that they experienced was not just the koinonia, of a hallelujah time when everything was good. As you read through the book of Acts, a deeper koinonia is going to be developed. And it is going to be developed as they watch Stephen be stoned. As they watch their women raped and taken from them and thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum, they will experience another type of koinonia as they are separated from their children. And Roman authorities will use their children as bargaining chips And tell them one of the things that happens in the early church. There's a story in the early church. It's one that's confirmed. There was a young lady that accepted Jesus. And it was found out and she was thrown into the prison. And they took her child from her. They took Haley Jean from her. They took Claire May from her. They took Ethan from her. They put her in the prison and they kept her there. And they really didn't want to kill her. The Roman Empire didn't want to just kill this mom. They didn't want to do that. But she refused. They took her child away and she refused. She refused to renounce Jesus. And so they brought the child into the cell. And they said, all you've got to do is renounce Jesus and we'll give you your child Back. And there's a story in early church of this mother who said, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I love my child. But because I love my child, I cannot renounce Jesus Christ. You see, people say, Why? Is there not unity in the church? Why all this division denominationally? Why all this uh, division among local churches that are in the same denomination? Why so much division in our church? Why does this division occur? Why such battles over leadership? Why can nobody agree with who, who should be listened to as a leader in the church? And this is one thing you find, and you find this pretty quickly, there are actually places where you find really good unity between denominations and you find really good unity among leadership and you, you find it far beyond what you find it here. You know where you most often find it? You find it in the places where the church is being persecuted and the Christians are being killed because when that happens, they realize one thing. You know what matters? What matters is Jesus. Is Jesus. You can talk to our missionaries. Our missionaries... in dangerous places, and they'll tell you they have great fellowship with other Christians. (laughs) They feel closer to some of them than they do us. Why? Because when you're all suffering together and the Lord's communion service becomes not just a little ritual you do, but every time you eat that bread and every time you drink that blood... You were reminded that his body was broken and his blood was shed, and you're going to need strength from him because they might break your body and they might spill your blood. When that happens, then you begin to understand what the koinonia of the early church is all about. And so we have popularity, and we have earthly power, and we have personality. And we have lots of money. But do we really have Jesus? Do you have Jesus? Koinonia. Koinonia, the fellowship with Jesus in his suffering and in the high times is what will make the church the power that it is and why it will not fall apart in spite of all The power of hell coming against it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? This is a serious sermon. It's both joyous what's occurring in the New Testament. It's also a reminder to us is where is the power at? Lord God, I ask right now that your Spirit would speak to us in a very serious sort of way. Lord, I pray that mothers and fathers would search their heart. They would search their heart, dear Lord, and ask, how how committed are they to you? Lord, I pray that students would search their hearts right now and ask, "Are are they displaying a fellowship with other believers that represents this deepness? Or is it just a shallow fellowship? Lord, I pray that deacons and trustees and Sunday school teachers and children's church workers, Lord, I pray right now that they will think about the marks of the early church. They will commit themselves to you and to your cause. Lord, you are such a good God. And we want to love you today and we do love you today. we need you so desperately Lord we need your power Lord I pray today that if there's one if there are many, if there's a group whatever it is today dear Lord that knows that they need to kneel at an altar to give you praise for who you are to ask for that strength of your spirit Lord to pray that you would strengthen them, that they would have the level of fellowship with you and others that you call for Lord whatever it is Lord, if there's one today that doesn't know You, Lord, we pray now, Lord, that salvation has been offered in Jesus' name, that they would come. Lord, if there's one that's not been baptized, that's been putting that off, Lord, I pray that this would be a reminder to them that this is a mark of the church, to be baptized in Jesus' name. Lord, give them the strength to overcome that fear of baptism. Lord, I pray that You would move. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.